Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Holy God, word made flesh, let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. The Old Testament reading today, as you have heard, is from Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 to 3, and then 10 to 11. If you want to follow along, it is on page 678 of the Pew Bibles. In the spirit of the morning, I will be reading it first in Greek, <laughs> then in Aramaic, and I have the recent Yiddish translation as well. But let us begin in English. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide them who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of, instead of faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he, for my whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will call righteous, cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. The word of the Lord. First, I want to just take a, a moment just to welcome uh, anyone who is streaming uh, this service. Uh, online. We are glad that you are part of our worship service today. And just a new note for um, parents or others, if you for any reason need to uh, kind of leave the sanctuary during the middle of, of worship, we have a new resource for you. Uh, just this past week, we've gotten um, a closed circuit TV set up in the upstairs hallway that you can access just right up here. Uh, we're hoping to have some comfortable chairs uh, and that there's sound out there. So it's just a way that if you feel like like you need to, um, you know, if you have a coughing fit or if you need to kind of get some air, uh, that is available to you, and that is a new thing that we are uh, offering. 
So, yes, to get to the New Testament, uh, we turn to the fourth chapter of Luke, and we will read 14, verses 14 through 21. Uh, This is the story in Luke of Jesus' return to his hometown uh, of Nazareth. Listen now for the word of God to the church. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and then the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I first began to tell people that I was leaving my law practice and that I was going to go to seminary, you might imagine people came to me wanting to have all kinds of conversations. And one that I remember very well was with a friend from Charlotte who pulled me aside and he wanted to talk about a very particular verse of Scripture. It was Jesus' teaching that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He really wanted to know what I thought it meant, and it was pretty clear to me that it had been eating at him a little bit, and I thought I knew why. This, this was and still is a very wealthy man, and this verse just didn't seem like very good news to him, right? To be honest, I really don't remember what I said to him. I probably hemmed and hawed about how money is not an evil in itself, but it does tend to kind of do things to people. Looking back, I probably, you know, I doubt I gave him very much comfort at all. But one of my main limitations was that Scripture doesn't really give us a whole lot of comfort on the disparity between the rich and the poor. And the Gospel of Luke is particularly direct on this issue. God's special concern for the poor is signaled right from the beginning as Mary ponders the birth of Jesus in Luke 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The point is also clear in the Beatitudes of Jesus, which are included in both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, for example, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in Luke's version, Jesus says, 
Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Matthew, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In Luke, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. In short, we're Whereas Matthew's gospel tends to spiritualize or generalize poverty and hunger, Luke makes them completely and utterly literal. The Luke and Jesus is not talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about people who have no money. The Luke and Jesus is not talking about spiritual hunger or emotional malaise. He's talking about people who haven't had a decent meal in a week. And that And note also that Matthew's Jesus seems to be talking about the hungry and the poor as if they're not really there. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be satisfied. But in Luke, Jesus is talking directly to the people who are suffering. Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be satisfied. I think this language can be hard for us to hear because, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, we are not poor. We just aren't. Now, there may be one or two exceptions, but I would say that the vast majority of us here today, dare I even say 99% of us, are not poor. We might feel poor sometimes, but we are not literally poor. The median household income here in Mount Pleasant is about 56% higher than in the rest of the country. But beyond that, the truth is that even the poorest people in the United States and the developed world are, by global standards, extraordinarily rich. Our perception of that fact may be clouded. According to a recent study, the average U.S. resident estimates that Looking around the world, the the median income out there is about $20,000 a year. The true figure is about a tenth of that. The average income across the globe is only about $2,100 per year. In the same way, most Americans assume that they're in the top, what, 37 to 40% of wage earners around the world. The truth is that the vast majority of Americans are easily in the top 10%. We are globally among the elite. We are not poor. And I'm beginning to feel like my friend was really onto something. That maybe we all need to be a little more nervous about camels and needles eyes and the fact that the bar of faith could be a little higher for us given the blessings of money and privilege that have been graciously bestowed upon us. And this seems especially true in light of what Jesus says in this morning's passage from the fourth chapter of Luke. Welcome home as a boy from the old village who's grown up and made good. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and is handed the scroll of Isaiah's prophecy. And he is given license to read whatever he wants. And he turns to the section that we now know as Isaiah 58 through 61, those chapters. And he reads very selectively from those chapters, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It would be hard, I think, to overstate the importance of the choice that Jesus makes. These words from Isaiah are the mission statement of Jesus. How does he come? He comes with the power of the Holy Spirit, which has anointed him. Why has he come? He has come to bring good news to the poor. Not the poor in spirit, not the metaphorically poor, but the poor. The people who are held captive by economic systems that oppress them and hold them down. I wish I had more time this morning to catalog the many ways that the Gospel of Luke continues to make this point directly again and again. I'll just mention two. Luke is the only evangelist to include the story of the poor man, Lazarus. Do you remember that story? The poor man with sores, who doesn't have a thing to eat, who gets stepped over literally and ignored every day by the rich man in purple linen who comes out of his house and steps right over Lazarus. And in the end, when Lazarus dies and his earthly pain is over, he is carried away by angels to join Abraham, Father Abraham in heaven. And When the rich man dies, on the other hand, he is left to languish in punishment and torment. Luke's also the only evangelist to include the teaching of Jesus that you may have heard before from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. Third grade was a long time ago, but I can still remember what happened in Mrs. Womack's class when it was time to go to lunch. Mrs. Womack would go over to her big wooden desk and she would open her right-hand drawer and she would pull out a stack of white laminated note cards. They were the free lunch tickets. And every day she would pass them out to the same kids. Most of them, I remember, were African-American. And I still remember Bertha whose desk was right near mine, she would always get one. And she would get her lunch ticket, and then she would line up right in front of me, and then our class would walk in our single-file line down the polished wood hallways of Cone Elementary School to the lunchroom. And I would walk carrying my metal Welcome Back Cotter lunchbox, (laughs) which was the most awesome thing that I owned at the time. I would walk with that little lunchbox, and Bertha, Bertha would carry with her the white laminated symbol of her poverty, a poverty that she was born into, a poverty that she had done nothing to deserve, a poverty that she could do nothing to solve. Matthew Dix, an elementary school teacher who went on to be a a successful novelist, was a lot like Bertha. He didn't really know he was poor until he got to Mrs. Laverne's fourth grade class. And he was the only child who had to raise his hand and get his lunch ticket, his free lunch. Matthew says that when he finally figured out that he was the poor kid in class, his top priority became hiding that fact. 
All you want to do when you're poor like that, he said, is to not let anyone know. So you develop strategies to hide your poverty from the people around you. When, for example, the Boy Scouts went camping, he knew that his sleeping bag was not warm enough for winter camping. He took some stacks of newspaper with him. He knew that homeless people would sometimes stuff their clothing with newspaper to increase the insulation and keep warm. He, of course, told the other scouts that he just wanted to catch up on the sports pages. And then when they all went to sleep, he would roll up those pieces of paper into balls and he would stuff them down into his sleeping bag to keep warm. It wasn't so bad, he said. I viewed poverty as a kind of adventure. It was a challenge. It was constantly trying to figure out a way to get through and succeed. And then one day, Matthew and his friend Peter were riding bicycles back to Matthew's house after school. They did it all the time. They liked to race on bikes. And those races were always close and competitive and great fun. But today was different because Peter had just gotten a new 10-speed bike. And Matthew still had his old, rusty, hand-me-down iron huffy that probably weighed about 60 pounds. And the two friends raced home, and as they did, Peter quickly pulled ahead. Within 30 seconds, Peter had a 50-yard lead. Matthew said he just dug in and started pedaling even harder, harder than he had ever tried before. He could feel his heart just kind of pounding in his chest, but no matter how hard he worked, it didn't matter. He just could not seem to catch up. And Matthew also noticed something else. He couldn't help but notice that Peter didn't really seem to be trying all that hard. Peter was beating him handily, and he was barely breaking a sweat. Up until that point, Matthew said, I had had this idealized version of life where effort, intelligence, creativity, and hard work would always overcome whatever material lacking you might have, whatever money you're lacking. But as I watched Peter go away, he said, I realized that my problem was money. I was never going to own a 10-speed bike And I was never going to catch Peter again. And I cried the whole ride home. The Spirit has anointed me, Jesus says, to bring good news to the poor. To seek out those who are trapped by circumstances beyond their control and then to do the work that is necessary to set them free. We say that we are a missional church and it is true that we do some wonderful work for others in Christ's name. We really do. But when Jesus opened the scroll in Nazareth and read his missional statement from Isaiah, he gave us a question that every disciple must ask of himself or herself, am I good news to the poor? Is my life 
good news to people who are hungry or homeless? Am I really paying attention to the circumstances that condemn certain people to poverty and policies that hold them there? Am I being honest with myself and others about my privileges and the advantages that I have had, advantages that start out as welcome back Cotter lunchboxes and 10-speed bicycles, but then multiply later into college educations, into free access to markets and jobs, into the ability to get a loan on a handshake, To be a disciple of Christ is to be sensitive to the ways that some of God's people are being unfairly treated and oppressed, and then to be bold in following Jesus into the work of setting them free. To not only speak about good news to the poor, but to be good news to the poor. So what do you think my nervous friend wanted to know? Is it really impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. No, it is not impossible. Jesus himself says that while we cannot imagine how a camel could ever possibly go through the eye of a needle, Jesus also says what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. At the same time, Christ is very clear about his mission, and he really leaves us precious little room to talk ourselves around the core challenge of that mission. Christ is firmly on the side of those who do not hold worldly power, who do not have worldly wealth, who are held captive by unjust circumstances that they cannot control, And to join with Christ is to join with them. May God give us the desire and the will and the courage to be good news to the poor. Amen.